Welcome to Product Voices, a podcast where we share valuable insights and useful resources to help us all be great in product management. Visit the show's website to access the resources discussed on the show, find more information on our fabulous guests, or to submit your product management question to be answered on our special Q&A episodes. That's all at productvoices.com. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform. Now, here's our host, J.J. Rory, CEO of Great Product Management. Hello and welcome to Product Voices. Today's episode is why better product innovation starts with user-centric research. Such an important conversation. So much of what we do in product management is problem analysis and customer discovery, and that entails research. And so we really have to be good at user-centric research in order to find problems to solve and ultimately to innovate. My guest today is Rex Chekel. He's a principal product designer at TXI, a product innovation firm based on one big idea in three small words, tech done right. Since 2002, TXI has partnered with Fortune 100 companies, startups in Singapore and Tokyo, industry leaders in London and LA, and mission-driven nonprofits in its hometown of Chicago. Rex, thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's going to be a great conversation. I'm excited about this. Such an important topic. So first of all, let's just start with kind of the work that TXI does. Uh, I'm familiar with TXI. I've, I've loved the work that you've done. So um, tell us a little bit about how TXI thinks about product innovation and what are some examples of your approach? Um, so our definition of product innovation or how we look at it has been evolving and changing over the years. Uh, I've been there for, it'll be eight years in December uh, and I think, you know, when we started or when I started there, we were mostly a, a sort of development shop with some design. Um, and as we built a design practice over the years and kind of were inspired by Google Sprint and um, these ideas of how can we facilitate and drive towards insights through a larger group, um, prioritizing that diversity of perspective um, and doing user research. Uh, how can we incorporate that into our process and really lean into it as something that we believe leads to better products, innovation and market, uh, and fit within our sort of agile design and development approach? So as we have evolved, um, our approach to product innovation has really focused in on that user-centered research. Um, and that really begins with us um, asking and trying to divine sort of what is the problem space or what is the opportunity that a client thinks that they they have? They're often founders coming to us with an idea or large companies um, thinking that there's an opportunity to, to streamline or innovate in an area of their business. And so they come to us to kind of help them uncover uh, what could be done, what opportunities are there, uh, and what pain points are there, or even is there anything there? there? Uh, oftentimes we may go through work and tell clients, like, from what we see, the sort of user desirability isn't high enough um, for market adoption for you to even impact your business. Um, because we're always looking at product through sort of those three lenses of the business, the user, and feasibility, or the, the cost of development, or can it be built? Uh, so for me, when I look at product innovation, um, I'm looking at typically validating someone's idea. Someone has come to us with an idea, they think there's an opportunity there, and so I see it as my first sort of step and due diligence 
is to start to understand how can we validate this assumption? Um, what are the opportunities? What does the market look like in this space? Is it saturated? Are there areas to kind of own or build market share uh, with this idea? And that all comes to down to kind of our process of um, product discovery uh, and innovation, like validation. So what we would usually start with is like understanding where did the idea come from, interview kind of the stakeholders within the company involved in the formation of it to try to build empathy for their perspective. Because first and foremost, it's not about saying you, we think your idea is wrong um, or we you know, don't think there's any opportunity in this space. I really try to understand where they are. I'm trying to build trust with them in a relationship so that we can work together well in the future. But also I'm trying to make sure that I am properly vetting their idea. And that's going to come in through um, several different ways. If it's a kind of an open space and they ha don't have a lot of experience in it, but they have an idea because, oh, I have this problem. Other people might have this problem. What we're going to start with is more sort of qualitative research. We're going to go out and do ethnographic um, studies. We're going to, you know, if possible, go to their home, go to their place of work. We're going to sit with them and interview and talk about their day and kind of build a user journey of what um, various uh, people we talk to's day is like. And then we're going to start to map that and find um, commonalities between pain points or areas of discomfort. And those pain points are where your opportunities are. If we can solve problems for people, we can start to create products that would want to be used by people. And so we, you know, may have an idea we want to validate or we think that people have a problem there. We may come out of this ethnographic research and say, actually, the problem we have is further upstream. Um, it has to do with something else. And Toyota was really good about this with their sort of seven whys framework um, in understanding a problem. So like when your car breaks down, you know, that's a problem. So we might solve for it by putting in a check engine light. But if the user never responds to the check engine light, then, you know, they're never going to prevent that breakdown. So we keep going up the train until we find like, what's the core problem here that's preventing the person from doing this action? And how could we make it easier to solve for it? Uh, and so that's the same thing we are doing is we're asking these questions um, to a certain level of depth where we feel that we've kind of hit the bottom of what can be done there. And then we start to take all of that synthesis and understand across all these demographics, what are the main pain points that we could focus in on? And then we use those pain points to start to ideate concepts and ideas for solutions. Um, once we have a lot of solutions, we're going to then validate those um, with stakeholders and internal people to get their domain expertise. And then we may do something like concept testing. We may do use a, like um, build a prototype, but we want to then take all those ideas and um, make them real uh, and then be able to put that in front of users and understand, again, um, is this solving for a problem they have? Is this something they would use? Do they have any other ideas? Sometimes I like to do a sort of co-creative session where I'm not only asking them questions, but I'm asking them to be a participant in the ideation process. And it might be given through prompts or like, if you could fix one thing on this, what would it be? Um, there are lots of different ways to approach this, but the sort of framework is always the same of like research and understand, prioritize um, 
sort of what you want to solve for or what you think needs to be solved for, and then start to ideate and then validate those ideas. And that process can kind of loop over and over again. I love that. And and it, you actually answered something I was going to ask you, which was kind of what does research look like? And I think you gave a really great um, uh, kind of narrative of some examples there. So, so I want to dig a little bit, though. I want to ask you a question about... Um, you know, the, the situations where sometimes products will have uh, two very distinct user groups, right? And, um, y- you know, we have to understand the the nuances between those user groups. So how can product managers weigh the two during this research and design process? Well, I love this question because it is um, something I've been talking a lot about recently, uh, particular in digital therapeutics, um, you're going to have multiple stakeholders, Obviously, the patient is going to be the end user of something, but the practitioner or doctor is also critical because they become a gatekeeper to your product. Um, if you cannot get the buy-in from the physician, they're never going to prescribe your tool or product. So you need to look at both of those. And then healthcare is interesting in that there's also other layers like the provider what are the, you know, insurance providers are not going to discount things or um, put them under their plan unless they have data or proof to back it up. Um, and so research is an imperative when it comes to all three of these stakeholders in a healthcare product. And when it comes to how do you prioritize one or the other, I have some interesting maybe perspectives on this in that I really like to focus on the question of sort of market penetration and market adoption. So doctors are influencers to patients in that patients see them in an expert. Um, So doctors hold a lot of sway of getting buy-in from a patient on a drug or a treatment plan or physical therapy. Um, We rely on that trust for patients to do what doctors say. Um, And that is because they see them as an expert. So. When it comes to market adoption, getting someone to use your product and getting someone to actually get their the product in their hands is all going to be determined on the doctor. Uh, and so when we were doing a recent project, we were focusing a lot on the doctor and also sort of the opportunity that could come with improving health outcomes overall, not just for an individual patient, but for a whole sort of vertical of medicine. Um, and that comes through the interesting ideas around data and data collection. And so I think as a product um, manager or a product owner, you really need to pull all the way back and kind of understand the pros and cons or the, the opportunities for each of these demographics, where that overlap is, and then what's a release plan look like? Because you're not going to burn the ocean and do all of this work at once. But let's say you have some assumptions. I think that if we put pain tracking in this app, we'll get better insights to patients' pain and patients will understand um, their pain over time, which will give them a better perspective on their healthcare journey. Um, And it won't be as swayed by sort of recency bias because with humans, pain is, is always pain and it's very hard to understand increments in that. So that is our goal is to, you know, eventually improve outcome for patients as a whole um, and improve the practice of medicine. But how do we get there? Well, we know that 
we're not going to be able to validate our idea with patients until we have enough quantitative data to say, yes, this is working or this is not working. So just like the agile process is we want to get something out in market and we want to test it. But then we have this gatekeeper that is keeping this product out of patient hands, which is the physician. So in that initial release, you need to really prioritize the physician needs to get this product to the patient. Now, obviously, we're not going to sacrifice the outcomes or the main goals that we need for the patient's experience, but we are going to really focus in on how do we get this product to their hands. Once we've solved for that, later releases will start to um, improve upon what we see in market and feedback we get from patients on the experience as well as doctors, but that's when we can start to add more features to the patient side of the experience. Um, and as we you know, move up that ladder even further in the product timeline, we're going to then start to prioritize the provider. So the data that the doctor's getting can then you know, be developed into researcher studies that can then prove to providers that this product is beneficial or um, has a certain level of efficacy. That's a great example. I love that example of how, you know, having multiple uh, stakeholders and how do you research them and how do you prioritize them? I think that's a a really, really um, good example of how product managers and product teams can go about doing that. So um, I want to take us up a little bit um, and and, um, have a a little bit of a different conversation. One of the things that um, we hear a lot about is teams need to have a culture of product innovation, right? And I I think every organization out there would love to say that they have a culture of product innovation. Um, Well, I believe that TXI does that very well because of just the the virtue of of who you are and what you do for other organizations. So talk to me a little bit about what your thoughts are on what does that look like, right? It's such a vague topic in so many cases, a culture of product innovation. What does that look like? And how how do you think that firms can shift their cultures in in the direction of having kind of, uh, or, or embracing um, product innovation? So I will kind of look at this through my experience. Um, I'm not an expert in, in organizational culture, um, Obviously, I'm like a contributor on a design team. So I think, you know, to speak authentically, I will focus kind of on what TXI does. And and I really believe in this. Um, It's a reason I'm still here. um, And that is because of our values alignment. And so I think that's where it really starts. You know, there's a team, but that team is within an organization. And this really needs to come from the top down. And it needs to be incentivized. um, And it needs to be enforced. (laughs) And I think maybe that sounds a little bit stronger than I mean, but like, I think that all human behavior is a combination of carrot and stick. And so understanding how do you hire appropriately for people that match your company values? How, well, I guess even further up, how do you set your company values? Um, For us, I think the values that really help lead to innovation are um, growth mindset, a belief in integrated teams or an integrated process. Uh, And I think, you know, in consulting in particular, um, building empathy and for the client and their problems um, and really authentically, you know, working for them. Uh, I think these three things really help. Oh, I'm sorry. There's one more. And that is um, 
sort of diversity of opinion or diversity of perspective or life experience. Um, and I think you see that kind of manifest itself in, especially at TXI, in our investment in DEIB uh, and what we're doing in that space to make ourselves a place for people of um, all backgrounds and experiences to work at, because we value that perspective. We believe that perspectives are important in innovation. That's amazing. I, I, I love all of that. And I really appreciate what you said about human behavior and human activity kind of being a combination of the carrot and the stick. And I think that's a really good point of, you know, having the, the incentive and the environment to, um, you know, embrace and foster product innovation, but also holding everyone accountable for, for our values. I think that's a really important part of, of culture of product innovation and, and, you know, making sure that 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 stays in it. It's probably an ongoing effort, right? At, at TXI and, and every other organization out there to make sure that we're continuing that process. So I, I love that perspective. Thank you for sharing that. And so I want to actually ask you now, um, related to that topic, I know that there are things that happen in any organization that can be a threat to innovation and that culture of innovation. So talk to me a little bit about your experience and some things that you've seen that can ultimately threaten the success of innovation within an organization. Uh, the first one um, is maybe a little crass, but it is, is really kind of the most important thing to start. Um, and, and that is don't be an asshole. Uh, <laughs> I think that um, to be in in innovation inherently is scary. Um, It is about risk and mitigating risk. It is about listening to others and building empathy and trying to build and look through their eyes. So if you are self-centered or do not value some of these things, it's going to be really hard for you to be in innovation without sort of poisoning the well. And when I mean about poisoning the well is, um, especially in creatives, it's, you know, there's kind of a design maturity process that happens of um, very much about my own ego uh, and, and having the best design to like switching over to sort of an all boats rise team building um, value system where, your designs will only improve with the input of others. So if, if you're an asshole, it can be really hard to take feedback, can be really hard to listen to other people, and you're going to really design from a um, sort of internal perspective. And so I think those traits in an innovation lab are going to have chilling effects on the ability of people to feel comfortable sharing their ideas. Uh, and so I think that's one of the first things you need to do is you know, you need to create a space where everyone is in agreement about what proper communication looks like and that our value is for the product success, not our individual success. No one person on the team is going to win the trophy. This is about the whole team, the whole company. And that is a mindset and a value um, that can be hard to grow. Sometimes you need to hire for it or sometimes you need really great leadership that instills that. Uh, and so when you get into these organizations that spin up an innovation lab, some of the things I start to see happening are, you know, power dynamics. Um, I always think there needs to be a decider in the room, 
But if that decider um, is going to have a chilling effect again on the ideation process, then it can be a hindrance. Um, when you can move past that, then you're going to get into interpersonal communication patterns and anti-patterns. So how does the team communicate? Oftentimes an innovation lab or someone's trying to start innovation in their organization by its necessity is going to involve a lot of people across different verticals of the business. You're going to have people from operations. You're going to have people from sales. I've worked in CPG before um, in food and there we have food scientists, advertising, marketing, um, designers, we have people from all across the company and they are all either the king of their own domain or they're not used to working together in collaboration. Um, they don't ideate or brainstorm. These are all things to them where they're like, I don't do that. That's, you know, I'm not a designer or I don't do that because I, you know, just make the decisions. So you need to level the playing field for them somehow and that they value and respect each other's input. Um, because again, if you value design thinking and want to innovate, you need to understand that diverse perspectives are the best way to do that kind of work authentically. Um, and so I look for, does someone stand up when they're talking or move or gravitate towards the front of the room? There are lots of little weird things people do with their body language to assert themselves or to credentialize themselves in a group of people, especially if they don't know each other very well. So if I'm facilitating something like that, I start to focus in on those things or I create exercises where I can mitigate them. That's why we do post-it notes. That way we might do dot voting or note and vote or any of these sort of facilitation techniques you may have heard of. Um, I like to understand and know that the why behind I'm doing those things is because I'm trying to mitigate some of these patterns or behaviors that are going to cause some people to clam up or for ideas that are good not to rise to the top because someone's prioritizing their own idea and then using their voice to leverage it. Uh, so that's more at a team level when it comes to an organization. If it is not supported at the top and in leadership, it's going to be hard to maintain. I think when companies that I have worked with in the past, the CEO that um, embraced innovation and started a lab and, and really was pushing the organization to look into these areas, when they left and a new CEO came in, that CEO's first job is to prove their worth. And so what they're going to do is focus on efficiency and fat, and they are going to cut things like that if they don't actually value or see the value in this kind of work. And so that's why organizations start up innovation or it becomes a buzzword for a year or for a goal and then suddenly disappears. And that's because it's not permanent in that leadership level um, and it's not trickling down to the managerial level and then eventually to sort of the, the contributor staff that are making things. Um, and so I, if I see it at the not at the top, I know that it's um, – probably not long for this world <laughs> and isn't really truly embracing innovation. Yeah. What, what great advice. I love that both, both from the perspective of, you know, it's got to come from the top and be, be truly permeating within the top levels of the organization. But, but I love the practical advice too, of, of looking and working with the team and, you know, seeing those, those things that can, can end up being a threat to, to the culture and to innovation. That's, that's really great advice. So, so Rex, my final question for you is, 
what resources have you found valuable as you've learned about and taught others about user-centric research? Um, I am a voracious consumer of things. <laughs> um, I am looking for patterns and interests just everywhere all the time. It's, I mean, it's really lucky that um, I, I have that innate interest because it aligns with the job I have now. Um, but I do think that curiosity and a growth mindset is the best path um, to embracing and learning these things. Uh, I have hundreds of books, and I can tell you that I've probably read five of them. But sometimes just by owning them, I feel like I'm absorbing their knowledge. But I read a lot of Medium articles. Um, I talk about this incessantly with people, refining my perspective and my opinion on it and getting new opinions from other people or learning new things. I think it's an active, you have to be an active participant in this. Um, it's not something you can take a class on necessarily because it's in constant flux. You are evaluating the problem. You walk into a room and you see the people in there. You start to understand what their needs may be. Then you have to start formulating a plan out of your toolkit of different things that are going to meet those needs to create the environment to try to do innovative work. So there isn't ever a one-step plan or a, a one plan that works for everything. You need to have a broad and deep tool set so that you can identify and understand which tools to add sort of to the mix. And so that comes through observation and it comes through discovery and learning. And this is something I tell our design team all the time is that we are detectives and not psychics. And so question everything, you know, come with that, that really open mindset to learn or to have your opinion changed. And if you can model that behavior, you can start to get others to um, reciprocate. Um, and if you can explain to them why it's valuable, you can get buy-in. And I think that that, you know, is always so important. If you don't know why you're doing something, it's going to be really hard to convince someone else to do it. Yeah. We're detectives, not psychics. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> that's fabulous. I'm going to start using that. <laughs> um, I may even put it on a t-shirt. That's, that's just awesome. Um, I love that. So yeah, great advice. I mean, we're just on this learning journey and, and there's no, there's no end in sight. Um, and, and that's the fun part in, in many cases, because, you know, we, especially for, for those of us like, like you and me who are just kind of, you know, curious beings, um, and most, most folks in design and, and product are as well. So, uh, love that advice. Just keep learning, keep finding ways that, that, uh, impact you and your learning in your learning, uh, journey as well. So, um, Rex Chuckle, thank you so much for joining me, for sharing your expertise and your perspectives. It's been a great conversation and I've enjoyed it a lot. Thank you so much for being on Product Voices. Thank you for having me. Uh, obviously it's one of my favorite topics. So I'm always here to talk about it if you need more. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you again for joining us. And thank you all for joining us on Product Voices. Hope to see you on the next episode. Thank you for listening to Product Voices, hosted by J.J. Rory. To find more information on our guests, resources discussed during the episode, or to submit a question for our Q&A episodes, visit the show's website, productvoices.com. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform. 